You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. It's Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I'm going to start with uh, just a little personal note before we get into the substance of today's show. I, I know many of you are aware of the fact that I've moved, uh, <laughs> moved from about 15 miles out of town to right in the heart, the, the middle of town, and now live about three minutes from the office by bike, live uh, a few blocks from the main strip through town, like five blocks from downtown. Uh, we're in, we're in the heart of Brainerd now. And boy, I got to say that the days that I have been able to be here in town and just enjoy it, I've, I've found, I have so much free time and I just, it's, it's been fantastic. On the other hand, <laughs> as part of this transition, uh, I, I still own the other house and we've been working to get that, on the market. And it's, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, 20 years ago when I built the house, uh, I would get done with work and I would go to the house and I would work on it till one in the morning and then go home and sleep for a few hours and then go back to my job as an engineer and, and repeat. And, you know, as a 20 some year old guy, that was fairly easy to do. It was something I was able to accomplish and able to, to get done. And it was, it was tiring. It was stressful. But as a young guy, well, today I'm, you know, 43, uh, have two kids. They don't let you, uh, you know, dog it. <laughs> I've got I've got all of you and, and, and all my responsibilities here. And I've spent uh, probably five nights a week, maybe six nights a week uh, over at the, the other house getting things done. And we had the realtor come in last week, week before yeah, last week. And, you know, I thought we were, I thought we were really close. Of course, the realtor comes in, has like a whole list of things, including, uh, I had the basement, um, sheetrocked and he said, why, you know, why don't you put carpet in? Cause then it will count as finished space and, you know, it bumps you up into a whole other category and yay, yay. So all of a sudden, you know, I, I me, me, you know, making two mortgage payments and, and, uh, you know, all the cash flow of, of moving a house from one house to another and all the things. And uh, it's just been a nightmare. All of a sudden, you know, plop down thousands of dollars to get carpet in and then spend a day uh, doing trim and, uh, you know, all, all this stuff. It, it's just been it's been a, it's it's been way too much work. Um, and I feel bad because I have I have like a million things I want to write about. I have just a, a long list of things I want to podcast about. And I feel a little bit like last summer when I had the storm and, uh, you know, had to saw my way out of the driveway uh, just to just to get into the office and literally lost like six weeks of my life, um, you know, p just picking up the hundred or so trees that uh, that had been blown over in the storm. The, lo the, the short end of the story is that this is almost done. Uh, we were going to get the house listed today. Realtor came out. We walked around. We talked about it. There's a handful of things. I'm probably going to be able to finish those up tonight or tomorrow. And then 
the house will be on the market on Monday. And, and I, I really, I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking at it as like, I'm done, right? Like it's on the market, you know, you, you, to paraphrase our, our former defense secretary, you go to market with the house that you've got, right? Not the one that you, you wish you had. And I, I'm, I'm really proud of this place. I, I mean, I love it. I built it. I designed it. Uh, I, I love it. I, I think that, you know, there's an, there's an endless list of tiny things that you could do. For example, last weekend, my wonderful mother-in-law and sister-in-law who have been also a huge help in this, Decided I needed a new uh, toilet seat. I, I, I can't really explain. They looked at it and said, you need a new toilet seat. I'm like, okay. Uh, so I, you know, dismantled the old one. Well, it's it's rusted on and it's taken me. I've worked on this thing for 45 minutes. I can't get the, the dang thing off. But it's all dismantled and like the, the seat is gone. It's just the screws that are in. And it's one of these things. It's like, it's just a, it's just a persistent nagging problem those are going to be done right like i'm going to be like okay i'll 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 saw this thing off and we'll be done with it and then i'll just move on and then i'll have a new toilet seat and i'm I'm not going to worry about this anymore there's a there's like a long list of things like that that are just like nuisance little things and at some point here i'm just going to quit with those i'm just gonna be done so i wanted to share this with you because like last night um you know, in anticipation of meeting with the realtor today and hopefully being completely done, like I, I was hoping he would walk in today and say, yes, we're ready to go. He, you know, he basically said, yes, we're ready to go on Monday. But here's like five things you can do between now and then to to make this place really incredible. And um, so, you know, I, I, I'll do that. But I, I was at the house till 3.30 last night, 3.30 in the morning, uh, which is a ridiculous time of night to be, uh, you know, uh, screen in light bulbs, etc. But nonetheless, I'm here today and we're going to take a, take a, a bit of time here. And I don't know if I can get through all these or not in the time we've got. I did a presentation online, a, a web webinar, web broadcast back in June for a group called the American Pedestrian and Bicycle, I'm sorry, the Association of Pedestrian and Bicycle Professionals, APBP. And I did that and, and we had a QA and a uh, as part of that, but we ran out of time and they were pretty uh, tight on, on the time budget. And so they asked me, you know, would you be willing to answer questions that were submitted that we didn't get to? And I said, sure, just send them on over. Well, I've got this long list of questions and I'm going to try to to bite off a handful of these today. So uh, I, I did uh, with them uh, a kind of a transportation uh, conversation uh, with a little bit of the curbside chat stuff thrown in on, on the finance of cities. So a lot of these questions relate to that. Here's, here's the first one, and it actually says comment. We have gotten pushback from agencies on putting in bike ped infrastructure striping due to higher maintenance costs. Um, yeah, you, you, you quite possibly have, uh, my reaction to that, I'm assuming that it's a comment that you want me to react to. Uh, if, if you, uh, want to build a place that will be the easiest to maintain, in other words, if your goal 
is to have a place that is really, really easy to maintain and that is like your highest priority, then, then you're going to have like the junkiest city ever. Imagine your own house. And if you said, okay, I have a kitchen here and I want to make it the easiest kitchen to maintain. I want to make this simple to maintain. What, what, what would you do, right? You would essentially remove everything that would be cool. You would remove every nuance, every little thing. You'd have like, you know, something that you could just walk in and, and with a garden hose, like hose it down with a floor drain and, you know, a squeegee and run everything over to that. And, and it would be just this very like sterile, wretched, you know, unenjoyable kind of environment. There, there's no question that if you, if, if maintenance, and I see this all the time where cities, like put their maintenance guy in charge of plan review. Okay. We're, we're going to look at the plan and the maintenance guy will say, well, I, I don't really like that because it's, it's going to be harder to maintain. And my response is always, I, I, I don't care. I, I, I don't care. And it's not that I, it's not that I want to make things complicated to maintain, but understand what that trade-off is. The, the trade-off here in America in terms of development pattern is that we have gone for, quantity over quality. We've gone for quantity over quality. So really it's easy to maintain a mile of road if you just drive, you know, can drive down it uh, with a big truck and then there's a big cul-de-sac at the end and, you know, you can do one whip turn in and one whip turn out and, and, you know, it's very easy to maintain. Do those neighborhoods have any value? No. Do they hold their value over time? No. Do they, uh, you know, are they on a per foot basis really expensive to build yet return very little? Absolutely. So, I, you know, if if we turn our cities over to the maintenance department, we will get cities that are easy to maintain that nobody wants to live in. And if that's what your city's doing, I, I can't I can't help you with that. I mean, there's no there's no like you know data driven argument. I mean, beyond the data driven argument I've given, I mean, as soon as you get into places that are more walkable, as soon as you get into places that are built incrementally, uh, you know, you start to get into places that have a higher correlation with uh, financial success. But you know, if your maintenance guy is going to stand up and say, well, I, you know, I, I don't want to have to go out and restripe that crosswalk. So we shouldn't have a crosswalk there. Well, okay. You, you're going to have a crappy city and there's nothing I can do about it. Um, we have to, and let me give you like the other extreme, right? Let me give you the other extreme. I, I was sitting at a restaurant in Celebration, Florida, which is right outside of Disney World. And you know, you, you get the same effect at Disney World. But I'm sitting at this restaurant having breakfast. It's like 7.30 in the morning or so. And here is a, a street crew. They must have had four guys out there with brooms and power washers and what have you. And, and, and they were essentially cleaning the street. I don't know if they do this every day. I don't know if they do it every other day, once a week, whatever it is, but here's this crew and they're out and they're, you know, early in the morning, power washing the street and, and making it look good, weeding, picking up. Now, did they go power wash every neighborhood through the entire community? No, no, this was like two blocks, right? But it was the two blocks at the heart of the community. It was where all the economic activity was going on. It was, it was where everything was happening, right? And so that place got extra love. That place got extra attention. Uh, if, if you go up the street to Disney World, you know, a place where uh, 
uh, you know, millions of Americans go on vacation and find it, you know, completely normal that things would be maintained and looked at. If you step back and look at that, you'll see that there is, uh, how do I put this? There is a, a thought given to maintenance. I mean, there's thought given to how do we do this efficiently, but it's one of the values and actually it's a lower value than the other values that they have, which, you know, are, are in order, you know, safety, uh, courtesy show efficiency, uh, are the, the four Disney values. So you, you, know, you look, is this, is what I've built safe? Uh, is, is it respectful to the people around? Uh, does it present well? Does it make a good show? And then, you know, how efficiently can we do this? Can we replicate this? I actually think for a city, like that's a good approach, right? I mean, a, Efficiency of maintenance is one value, but it's a far lower value than than everything else than 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 everything else. And and you know, I think you get to the point where it's like, okay, you know, we need a crosswalk here because people are going to cross. Uh, then you can ask, like, how do we do this efficiently so that we can maintain it easily? You know, how do we do this so that it can be the most easily maintained? But it's absurd to suggest like, well, we shouldn't have a sidewalk or we shouldn't have a bike lane or we shouldn't have anything nice uh, if it requires us to expend energy maintaining it. Let me move on. Chuck, uh, please address the efficacy. I'm, we're dealing with professionals here, obviously. <laughs> the efficacy of the claim that arterial roads are safe in urban areas. Two observations. This is all in the same question. First, streets that are classified as arterials account for a majority of traffic fatalities. And this is in San Antonio, he says. They clearly are not safe. Second, can controlled access highways be justified in urban areas? They account for a high percentage of fatalities and the land use patterns needed to support urban highways is inconsistent with land use patterns for walkable, productive areas. I think I can I think I can answer this question quickly and uh, and precisely, but let me have a drink of my Mountain Dew here first. All right, please address the efficacy of the claim that arterial roads are safe. Arterial roads are unsafe. They are the most unsafe uh, environment that we routinely build today. You combine high speed traffic. And by high-speed traffic, I mean anything over a neighborhood speed, anything over 15, 20 miles an hour. You can buy high-speed traffic with complexity, right? With turning movements, uh, random events, you know, people in cars, people outside of cars. Uh, you, you combine high speeds with complexity, the outcome is tragedy. That, that, that's just any, that, that's, a, that's a social equation, Right. You combine high speeds with complexity. When you have complexity and you have low speeds, now very safe. When you have high speeds and simplicity, very safe. But when you combine high speeds and complexity, you're going to have tragedy. You're going to have an incredibly unsafe environment. So the, the idea here that streets are classified as arterials account for the majority of traffic fatalities in San Antonio, th this is something we see all over. A lot of times this data is hidden. Like the police departments won't give it to you. The state DOTs won't give it to you. Here in Minnesota, you can't get this data. Um, except, you know, in an ancillary way. We've been able to tease out 
here in, in some ways. And then I've seen in other places around the country, Fort Lauderdale being one where I've got a, a really good map of this. Every, all their fatalities, you know, the, the, the vast majority, almost exclusively all of their fatalities come on strodes. They come on these street road hybrid environments, the places where you have high speed traffic uh, and complexity. So yes, I mean, what you're observing in San Antonio is a, is a truth of the American development pattern. Can controlled access highways be justified in urban areas? No, no, no. In, in, if, if you are going to have complexity, if you are going to have urban land uses, if you are going to have investment where you're going to have, you know, sewer, water, sidewalks, curb gutter, you know, urban type of infrastructure, you have to have urban land use patterns and urban land use patterns require slow traffic. It, it requires slow traffic. And so, no, roads are for getting between productive places. Streets are the platform for building wealth. If you are trying to build wealth, you are trying to build a street. And, and on streets, you need to have slow traffic because you have complexity. Um, okay, question number three. On the slides with the value for the blocks calculated, what went into the value calculation? Um, I'm not sure uh, because I use a bunch of different ones. Uh, let me just talk and let me, I'm looking here at the next question, Chuck, uh, how do you calculate wealth? So let me, let me combine these two because the, the way we calculate wealth is, uh, you know, in, in the presentations that I do and the slides we do is generally use like publicly available data, right? Like we use the assessment role and you could argue over whether the assessment role is an accurate, um, representation of the wealth of an individual. Oftentimes assessments are lower than what the actual property is worth. I get that. When I talk about wealth, what we're talking about is the community's wealth. Uh, what is the, um, what, what is essentially the tax base of the community, the wealth that is there that can be drawn upon to meet the kind of shared obligations that are required to make that place function. So we generally use, and, and when we see like the data, when I do the case studies, um, when we look at the great 3D mapping that Joe Minicozzi and the group at Urban 3 put together, when we look at these things, what we're generally looking at is ass assessed values. Now you can get into examples like the one we did in Lafayette, Louisiana, where we had like deep, deep data. We had way more than assessed value. We had uh, sales tax and we had, um, you know, different fee revenues. And we also looked at costs, uh, for really for everything. It was a incredibly intensive study. Uh, but for the most part, uh, what you're looking at there in the value calculation is the assessed value. And if we need it, uh, and, and can get it, uh, sales tax data. All right. How for Chuck, could you explain how adding extra capacity does not induce demand? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I remember saying that and uh, during the talk. And uh, I thought I might get a question about this one because obviously when you add extra capacity, you do induce demand. It, it's actually, um, I can't remember what the, the term that I was corrected on. It's not induced demand, it's something else, but... Anyway, I, I've grown up calling it induced demand. The idea that if you build it, they will come. If you build a lot of um, 
you know, highway capacity, you will get more drivers. Uh, yes, that is generally the case. What I was talking about in the presentation is that you, you reach a point uh, where you can't induce any more demand. You, you, you reach a point where essentially everybody's driving as much as they possibly can. And, you know, building more is not going to change things. Uh, building more will not induce people to drive anymore. There's only 24 hours in a day. Uh, I can only drive to work and to home and to different places. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've got to do other things other than drive. And, you know, we have, for the most part, made driving so convenient. You know, we've gone out of our way to make it the most convenient thing that, that anybody does. That what we see is that the more we build, we're not getting that you know inducement. We're not getting uh, the inducement the way we used to. There's been talk of you know have we reached peak car? I, I don't think we've reached peak car in the sense that you know our population is is growing and those people will drive. And yes, if we build more transportation infrastructure uh, and, and make it even easier for people to drive, people do drive more. Um, but what we're not seeing is, is you know, we, we're essentially at, in many places, the saturation point. And you could have tons of capacity. You could have, you know, a, a, lots of great systems and, and you could build way more lanes. And you're not going to get people to drive more because there just aren't enough hours in the day for people to drive more. Uh, we have reached, I, I don't want to call it peak car because peak car makes it sound like people are, are going to drive less. And I, I don't think I, I, I'm not suggesting that people are going to drive less, you know, short of some other stimulus that uh, that makes that happen. Um, but what I'm saying is that we're 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 beyond the point in most places in this country where additional capacity will will induce, uh, you know, a, any significant level of demand because people are find it convenient already to drive everywhere they need to. Um. What are the implications of this perspective, I guess my perspective, on the organizational structure layout of places or transportation system for an entire city? Um, well, that's not a, a, an easy question to answer. What are the implications? What are the implications of strong towns for the structure and layout of a city or uh, uh, places of transport for an entire city? Um, I think we could, I, I mean, I basically think that we spend like, you know, years talking about this. Let, let me let me try to simplify it down to a, a couple of implications. First, our cities have built way more stuff than they have the capacity to maintain. They are going broke. They are insolvent. And every city in this country, for the most part, with very few exceptions, are going to default in the next generation on large amounts of their obligations, whether that is a, a hard default where, you know, we, we don't pay back debts we have, or whether it's a soft default like we see in, in cities everywhere where we're having to, you know, default on promises and obligations we made. We're, we're laying off firefighters and police officers. Uh, we're not maintaining parks. We're putting off critical infrastructure. We're shutting off streetlights. All these things that, you know, we said we would do as part of things when we were growing, we were no longer doing and we're no longer doing it. Not because we're unwilling to tax people, not because government is lazy and, and, you know, wasting all our money on things, 
we're not able to do it because we developed in a very unproductive way, a way that creates more obligations and liabilities than it does wealth. And so, yeah, the implications are that, you know, every city is going to go through a, a Detroit style of decline. It may not be as serious as Detroit, but it will it will be present and it will be noticeable. And we will, in many ways, feel like less of a country than we were, uh, you know, a generation ago. Um, the implications of that <laughs> are, are, are many, uh, you know, everything from our national political rhetoric and reactions to, uh, you know, the, the, our national fiscal and monetary policy down to, you know, the way you and, and your family uh, get around and interact with the city. I, I think that there's no end to the implications. I, I think this is essentially the story of uh, America for the next, you know, two generations. How do we, how do we recover from this experiment? How do we transition from uh, essentially an opulence beyond uh, what anybody could ever have imagined? to what like a normal Western European lifestyle would be, right? Which is a huge step down for us, but by the rest of the world is still going to be like the greatest place ever. It's just going to be a huge transition for us. Uh, how do we go through this? And what are the, you know, what are the ramifications? I, I will say next week, um, we're going to have a conversation about suburban poverty. And I do think that one of the kind of stunning implications or jarring implications of the strong towns insights uh, in terms of the, in, the insolvency of our cities is that we're trapping a lot of poor people and actually creating a lot of poor people out of people who were formerly middle-class people because of this shift and because of this development pattern. And that's going to have profound implications socially, culturally, politically on this country. You know, we, after World War II, we trapped poor people in inner cities as wealthy and affluent moved out to the edge. And, and we look back at that as being like a terrible thing, which it was. But the people who were trapped in our inner cities still lived in largely coherent neighborhoods. I mean, you could walk to a, a place where you could get food you could take a bus to a place where you could get a job. The, the, there was a coherent way to exist in those places. When we abandon poor people and trap poor people in suburban areas, it, it's a completely different game, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a completely different level of despair. The huge ante of having an automobile, if that's not possible for you, uh, the huge ante of maintaining everything that it requires to keep the suburbs going. I mean, when you, when you stop maintaining this stuff, it falls apart pretty quickly. And that's a huge, your, your financial burn rate for living in the suburbs is tremendous. When we, uh, uh, when we isolate poor people in these areas and you know, you've got to walk two miles across stormwater ditches and, and over, you know, landscape berms to get to the, the grocery store. When we start doing this kind of thing, it's going to be very desperate. And I, I think the I think the social cultural uh, frontier for us, if, for those who are, you know, tapped into and, and worried about uh, people who are disadvantaged in life, I, I think that the action over the next generation is going to largely be in the suburbs. All right. 
Chuck, can you cite the economic studies you are using to support your street wealth connection? I spelled a mistake, but that's okay. Cite your studies. I I, I love that because, um, you know, I, I got, I, I get this every now and then from people who say, you know, uh, Where's your where you know where's your triple blind uh you know university tested study, and I just I just laugh. Um, I laugh because it's it, it, first of all it's not my paradigm. Uh, I'm I'm not a big study person. When I worked as an engineer, I, I rarely, um, you know, I I I got in this thing where I would like present a study to like city councils, and they they don't they don't care. They, they don't, nobody cares. No, nobody cares about your study. Then I went to graduate school and I was the guy like helping to write the studies as a, you know, as a, um, <laughs> as an intern, as a teaching assistant or whatever. Uh, and I would help like work on these studies. I'm like, this, this is a bunch of crap. Like this is just junk. What, what are we doing? I mean, we're, we're doing what a grant is, you know, uh, allowing me to get half my tuition paid, but this is not, this is not real research. And I'm not saying that real research is not done, but th this is very much not my paradigm. I'm I am not a uh, a person out, you know, looking for, uh, you know, reams and reams of data to support uh, things. Here's 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 the way I approach this. I started asking questions. I'm working as a professional. I start asking questions. This doesn't make sense to me. I start doing my own studies, right? Like I, like the, the very first case study I ever did is I looked at the road in front of my own house. I got my tax statement. I knew how much taxes I paid to the city. I knew the percentage of that that went to road maintenance. I knew how much it was going to cost to maintain the road. And I said, you know what? It's going to take the city almost 100 years to get back what they're putting into this road. I started to do this all over the place. And I, I built up my own, in a sense, data set of examples of models. Uh, and my big question initially was, is this just a central Minnesota thing? Nope. Is this just a Minnesota thing? Nope. Is this just a Midwest thing? Nope. Is this an American thing? Yes. And, and I, I've taken this to Canada and, and, and really, you know, the U.S. and Canada and we've done, you know, analyses there and looked at data there and, and, and pulled things together. Um, and the work that Joe Minicozzi's done in this regard has just been, you know, amazing and very uh, confirmatory and parallel to what we've done. Um, but we've largely, like, pieced this together ourselves. There's no study. There's no university that's put this together. There's no think tank that's done this. I often get asked... Uh, Chuck, you know, show me the, show me the study that says, you know, strodes are bad or show me the, show me the study that says we, we should, um, have streets and roads instead of strodes. Show me the study that says, you know, whatever. And I, I, I would say, you know, like, look, I, I'm, show me the study that says any of this junk works, right? Like I, I, I do feel like the burden of proof is not necessarily on me in this regard. Because what am I advocating for? I, I'm, I'm saying, in a sense, if we look back at thousands of years of, of human history, of way, the way cities were built, and understand that this way came about in, in, a, in, in an evolutionary trial and error kind of sense, it was highly refined to reflect who we are as humans and the way we go about doing things. 
I'm not suggesting it was perfect. I'm not suggesting it solved all problems, but I'm suggesting that it was financially strong and resilient. We started in North America, this whole new experiment on how to do things, a, a whole new approach. We're going to try something completely different. We're going to go a completely different direction. We're going to try hierarchical road networks and use-based zoning and separation of uses and uh, you know financing uh, from you know Wall Street of your local house, financing of Washington from your local sidewalk. This is like our new experimental way of doing this, and we're going to do it on a continental scale. And, and so we did, you know, and where were the theories? Where were the studies? I don't know. Maybe they had them. I'm sure they had, you know, something that would, would, uh, satisfy policymakers at the time. Um, but the reality is, is we could step back and see very clearly now that this financially didn't work and our cities are going broke and our cities are not financially strong and they're not resilient. They're not the way they were before we started this experiment. So my contention, my, my, you know, my plan, my notion is that, hey, we're here now. We can't go back. We, we can't, you know, undo the 70 years of what's been done. But what we can do is we can say, all right, now that we're here, we can try to understand the, you know, the, the problem so we don't blame crazy things and blame others. And, and, you know, we, we take responsibility for what happened. We actually account for the fact that we grew our liabilities far quicker than we built, grew our wealth. We can, all right, that was an abrupt stop. Sorry about that. As I'm speaking, and this is just indicative of the way things run when you're spread too thin. Uh, my, my recorder ran out of batteries. So right in the middle sentence recorder runs out. So, I look around the office as I'm looking around the office for more batteries, which I, by the way, didn't find. I get a call from a sheetrock contractor <laughs> who hadn't gotten the payment that I had sent him over a month ago. So I went and looked it up. Yes, the check hadn't been cashed. I felt really bad because I was actually behind on the payment when I sent it to him last month. So I got my car drove out to his place and paid him in person and on the way back picked up some batteries came back here so an hour 20 minutes later <laughs> i'm going to i'm going to start from where i left off and i actually had a lot of time to think about this and i i think i want to summarize uh i i think i want to tell you a little uh insight into the way some of these reports and studies are done because i I, I maybe I'm coming across as a little bit extreme or a little bit of a, a wacko saying, Hey, I, I don't, I don't put much faith in stock in these studies. Let me, let me talk to you about the premium study, the one done kind of annually or semi-annually by the American society of civil engineers. And really it's important to understand they are using the accepted methodology that all every study that I've seen dealing with transportation uses, and they are using the accepted methodology that the federal government uses to fund projects, that the state governments across the country use to determine cost-benefit analysis. You, you are using, they are using the standard methodology that everybody uses to determine the financial benefit of a project. Here's the biggest part of what they do. They will say, we need to spend however many trillions of dollars on transportation. 
here's the the horrible damage we're suffering by the the bad the decrepit state of our transportation system and they'll do things like say in this city you have uh you know so much time each day that's lost to congestion right there it's a it's an asinine number because it, it assumes you know that if you build more like more people won't go out and drive this is the induced demand thing we talked about earlier it it assumes that you know, there's a, the, the optimum number of people are driving at the optimum time every day. It, it, these are just bizarre assumptions. But nonetheless, they're assumptions that they, they assume. They're not as bad as the other ones, though. They take these people and they say, all right, if we can speed up their commute and save them, you know, take a specific stretch of road. We've got 100,000 cars a day that go on here. If we can improve everybody's commute by 30 minutes or 30 seconds a day, I'm sorry, 30 seconds a day. And we do that for 100,000 cars and we do that 365 days a year uh, for you know the next 50 years with this improvement. And the typical person makes $25 an hour salary and benefits. We, you know, we have just saved the the driver cumulatively when we look at all these drivers we've just saved them you know tens of billions of dollars so to spend two billion dollars on this project not a big deal right we we've saved billions of dollars as a theoretical exercise i i don't have a problem with that i, I really don't I, I i don't have a problem with that that is the math that that's like a, a nice uh you know ivory tower college professor economist, you know, kind of argument to make. Fine. Go go ahead. You you can you know, take but let's look at this in the micro and the macro. In a micro, if you're the driver and you just save 30 seconds worth of time, that does not change your life, right? That does not make you more productive financially. That does not uh do anything to you, even if, you know, it's 2 minutes, 3 minutes, whatever. It it doesn't change your life in any substantive way. Assuming that that gain is even real and persists, yet our, our equations and the studies and you know, you cite the economic studies that all the studies use that as a metric. But let's look at this in in the macro, and this is really the core rub, if we want to say, or the core insight of strong towns. You can't pay for concrete with saved time. You cannot pay for you know. Uh, re you know, new bituminous uh, on your highway with the saved wear and tear on everybody's car. There, there's no, there, that does not, there's not in a cash equivalent, right? We, we don't make these improvements and then turn around to people and say, Hey, um, you, you know, you, you just, we, we just saved you, uh, you know, 31 cents a week, uh, wear and tear on your car by this improvement that we did. And so we want you to pay us, you know, an an extra fifteen dollars for this for the course of the year, that's that's not that's never done. That's not going to happen. And so, from a government standpoint, we are essentially spending cash, and we are producing in in benefits esoteric things like save time, and save wear and tear, and you know other things that are not cash equivalent. And then we're going forward with these projects saying. These create, you know, all these great benefits. What we have done at Strong Towns and what I have insisted on doing from day one is to say, okay, 
great. I'm happy for you. That's great in a theoretical sense. But the numbers have to balance. We actually have to pay for things. Like money matters. And these infrastructure investments that we're making are actually supposed to uh, make us wealthier. I mean, we, we, we build this stuff so that we become wealthier. And what we actually see is that, sure, um, <laughs> if we measure wealth in terms of time saved, uh, we're incredibly wealthy. Um, you know, now you can drive all over the place and uh, save all kinds of time as opposed to if you were walking, right? <laughs> do, do you actually save time? Because, you, you know, now you got to drive to get milk instead of walk. Now you got to drive to work instead of walk. It's, it's all an arguable proposition. What is not arguable is that none of that saved time translates into dollars to actually pay for your project. So when I get the question, hey, Chuck, cite your studies, I, I blow it off because I'm the only one. I mean, Strong Towns is the only organization that's actually done real math here and actually said, here's why our cities are going broke. We might be creating all these like esoteric benefits that economists like to measure and really, quite frankly, project advocates like to boast about. But in terms of dollars in, dollars out, these are financial losers, huge. And here's the math that I've done. Don't say, if, you, if you're working on this as a city, don't, don't go cite some, some study uh, where you, you don't even know the math and the underlying numbers involved. Go do your own math. This is not hard stuff. This is not difficult. You know, th this is not like, you know, calculus. This is third grade math. Go do it. And you'll see right away why your city's going broke. All right. Chuck, what generates more pedestrian traffic in a small, in a small town downtown over that in the aisles of a big box mall at the edge of town, Baxter versus Brainerd? I think this goes to um, I think this goes to the notion that uh, you know the downtown of Brainerd was seventy eight percent more valuable than the big box you know the best most valuable big box auto dealership gas station site on the edge of town and and I, I think the assumption here is to correlate pedestrian traffic with financial success. And I, I think that there is a correlation. Uh, I don't necessarily think there is a causation. So I, I don't think you can, you know, I, I don't think you can say if you have A, you'll have B. Um, I guess I don't get, I don't, what, what generates more pedestrian traffic in a small downtown over that in the aisles of a big box mall at the edge of town? I, I, I don't, you know, people, I don't know. Um, people in proximity. Uh, that is a, that's a really weird question that I don't quite get. What are some of your favorite treatments to turn a strode into a street? Um, well, uh, the, the, the best ones, right. I mean, some of my favorite, uh, like, you know, these are a few of my favorite things. Uh, I love straw bales personally, <laughs> uh, not very widely used, but I, I, when I've seen them used like in the median to create uh, a median and narrow up the lanes and create like a space for pedestrians to, to go in like a temporary kind of, um, a temporary kind of way, like a demonstration project. I love pulling out the straw bales. 
uh, pulling out the flower pots and that kind of stuff. And, you know, really, because I, I think they're, they're more visually, uh, appealing and, you know, as opposed to like red cones and stuff. When, when people drive into an area with red cones, they think, oh, construction. When they drive into a place where there's flowering pots and, uh, and hay bales and, you know, trees and planters and stuff that are brought out temporarily just to show what a place could be, it, it changes the whole reaction that people have to it. So, I mean, my favorite straw bales, paint, um, you know, don't, don't, don't make this overly complicated. L let me go to the other extreme. My least favorite, uh, decorative brick, uh, you know, multi-million dollar, uh, engineering fees for, you know, a, a, a mile of decorative light, complete street, you know, uh, junk. I, I th this kind of stuff just drives me nuts um, because a lot of people hear, oh, you know, uh, Strong Town says that to have a financially successful place, we got to have sidewalks. And then they say, well, let's go out and build sidewalks as if, you know, like one equals the other. No, we say people. People are the indicator species and you have to garden them. You have to slowly nurture them. You can't transplant them. You can't artificially get them there. You've got to go find them where they're at. And then you've got to uh, like try little things to uh, get them to the places where you want to have them appear. This is this is this is a small incremental thing. This is a tactical thing. This is more gardening than it is hunting, right? This is not some big project. It's a small little thing. So go out and try. Go out and try things. Try little things. Chuck, how do you handle the argument that ADT is tied to customers? that might possibly frequent a business, particularly in suburban auto-oriented environments. I, 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 don't, I don't try to handle that argument at all. It's obvious. If you have, you know, ADT is tied to customers. Yes, ADT is tied to customers, and those customers might frequent a business, particularly in suburban auto-oriented environments. That's a, that's a, that is a true statement. Uh, I think, you know, that's a, that's a very incomplete uh you know, incomplete observation, right? Um, I mean, I, I think that that is like the Cro-Magnon man, you know, ooh, have ADT, have customers. Um, it, it's like, it's like the, you know, the base instinctual kind of uh, analysis, right? How much did that, that, how much does it cost to have that ADT? Where's that money coming from? What are the liabilities that that creates? How much did it cost to get that business uh, how many liabilities does that create? Um, you know, th these are more sophisticated sets of questions, right? Just as opposed to ADT equals customers, you know, equals economic growth. If that were the case, let's just go, you know, put in a, a circular track and just have people drive around uh, so we get as, you know, as much ADT as possible. It's just absurd. It's an, it's an absurd notion. All of this stuff comes at a price. And I think the more sophisticated question is, okay, given the resources we have, uh, how do we get the most customers? You know, I look at like the downtown of my city here, and there's a whole group of people that would push to spend millions of dollars buying up properties, tearing down buildings, putting in parking ramps, widening out roads so that you could get to the downtown. And essentially it would be competitive mano a mano at a parking level with Walmart, 
like just as convenient to go to the downtown as it is to Walmart. What, what's the problem with that? Here's the problem. Number one, in order to do that, you, you, would, you would basically like denude your downtown, right? Like you would have to get rid of a whole bunch of the things that people actually would want to go to. You could, sure, you could have a parking ramp but, and, and it would be convenient to park in, but then where would you go? Like, why would you be, you're going to go to the one little knickknack shop, you know, like what, what are you going to do? You, you, you would, the benefit of a downtown is having a lot of stuff, right. For people to go to, uh, within, you know, kind of convenient walking distance, you get rid of half that stuff. So you can have a parking ramp. Well, now you've defeated the whole point, right? It's like building the parking lot for Walmart and then not building Walmart. It's a mindless exercise. Why would you do this? But I think even more important is to look at that investment and say, okay, if we're going to build a parking ramp and it's going to cost $5 million or $10 million, whatever it is, and we're going to build this parking ramp, how much increase in wealth do we need to have that investment make sense? How much does our tax base need to go up as a result? And how much, you know, in a generation, in, in 30 years when we got to go out and this parking ramp's all junky and, and run down and we've got to go out and put money in it to fix it and all, how much money, you know, if, if we had to go out and build this again then 30 years from now, how much wealth do we need to have created in order to have that make financial sense? In other words, if you're going to take on this long-term promise, how much wealth do you have to create? And, and what you find if you actually run that math is in most cases, especially in small towns like, you know, where I live here, um, but it's even true in, in big cities where you're talking about specific neighborhoods, the amount of wealth that you have to create is astounding. It's overwhelming. It's, it's, it's a bizarre number uh, because it, it, it just, it, it doesn't translate. It, it doesn't work. It, it's a, it, it doesn't actually, it doesn't work at Walmart. The only reason it works at Walmart is because we're subsidizing it and taking on those long-term liabilities. It absolutely does not work in the downtown. It's, it's absurd. It, the numbers don't work. And so that should lead you to ask a, a, a different question. You're first asking how much wealth do we need to create if we're going to build this parking ramp? The answer is more wealth than is reasonable and the amount of risk than we're assuming is huge. So now the follow-up more sophisticated question is, okay, given the fact that we're not going to do financially absurd things, how do we get people to our businesses without you know, spending that money? That is a much more sophisticated question. And now you're starting to get into the realm of you know, the, the person on foot, you're starting to get in the realm of the bike. You're, you're starting to look around at the surrounding neighborhoods and say, boy, this really isn't very walkable, but if we could make it like slightly more walkable with some paint and some straw bales and some planters and some, you know, whatever type of treatments to make it happen, which would be pennies on the, on the dollar compared to a parking ramp. How many people can we get from this neighborhood to walk the, the two blocks to get here or the four blocks to get here or the eight blocks or the 12 blocks? You see, once you get success at two blocks, then you can move out to three and then four and then five. You start small, you work incrementally. How do we make this stuff happen? It all begins with the more sophisticated question. And this is why, you know, going back to the site, your economic study, I'm sure that you could find some, uh, you know, huh, 
I was I was just going to use like a really disparaging term. Uh, you know, some engineer desperate for work, right, or some economic development firm uh, who's willing to, you know, do 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 whatever they got to do to get a contract to come in and and write you some economic study that shows if you just get this much in you know parking fee revenue and you can get the you know tax the businesses this much and you can bond you can take out debt and it'll cost you this much to pay back that you can cash flow this parking ramp there's no question you're going to be able to find people who will put those things together um that's not what we're talking about we're talking about how do you take care of this thing over the long term how do you have this make sense how do you uh use this to leverage um, other investments in your core downtown, in your surrounding neighborhoods, and have that e- economic ecosystem start to emerge from, uh, from, from the places that you've got now. Okay. Chuck, have any data... I'm sorry that these are not written very grammatically well. Have any data to help make the economic case for the more maintenance intensive treatments such as landscaping and public plazas. Um, no, not in the economic study sense. Um, I know Joe's work has looked a, a little bit at some of these things uh, and, and it's, you know, there are some correlations, but I think for the most part um, we largely do parks and plazas pretty poorly in this country. And so I, I would hate to go out and say, um, you know, let, let's do this analysis now and then that will be like the definitive study. I, I, I think we have to look at parks and plazas in a different way again. And so let, let's just focus on a park because it's maybe the simplest to understand. Do we want parks in our cities? Yes or no? And if the answer to that is yes, then to me the strong towns question becomes, do we want that park to make properties directly more valuable or do we not care? Do, do we want the investments that we're going to make in a park to actually uh, make the properties that are, uh, uh, you know, directly adjacent and surrounding and within the sphere of this park, do we want those properties to actually increase in wealth or do we not care? For the most part, we, we don't care. Right, because we look at parks in isolation. Um, you know, we go out and we find the cheapest land we can, or we get some land donated, or what have you. We go out, we build a parking lot, we build facilities like internal to the park. Maybe we'll put in a trail and connect it to something, but we're really not worried about like the interface of the park with everything else. The way to think about a park, and Andrew Burleson, our board chair, actually said this to me years and years ago, and it, it made so much sense. If you think of a radio beacon, like, you know, broadcasting radio waves and you can stand, you know, within certain distances of this radio beacon and you're going to get the radio wave. And the further out you go, the worse the signal is, but you're still going to pick it up for quite a ways. The idea is that your parks are like a, a beacon. They're like a radio beacon. But instead of radiating radio waves, they're radiating wealth. And the challenge that you have is to say, how do we build, configure this park so that it radiates the most wealth possible, the furthest distance possible? 
So how do we extract the most wealth out of this investment? And if, if you look at a place like Central Park in New York, you can certainly make the case that if you were to go in uh, and develop Central Park, and let's just say we just developed, you know, one, but we developed 500 feet around the outside. We just moved it in 500 feet on every side. Could you make, uh, you know, could you increase the tax base? Absolutely. Quite a bit. No doubt. The problem is that what you would do is you would diminish the signal, the wealth signal that that park sends to all the properties around it. And they would in turn diminish in value. And I would argue, and, and this is maybe where you're asking for a study, I'm going to tell you I, I don't have one because we don't think of parks this way. Um, I would argue that doing that would decrease the value of, of you know, the radio signal and decrease property values uh, more than it would actually add wealth by you know, the building these new things right adjacent to the park. When we think about parks, when we think about plazas, when we think about these spaces, um, it's okay to talk about them in terms of aesthetics and amenities and what have you, but you're never going to convince people. You're never going to bring them on. You're never going to bring the broad, you know, mass of humanity along, especially in trying economic times by focusing on those issues. You got to talk about parks in terms of building wealth. And as I said in my Ted talk, you know, like six years ago, we didn't build parks uh, because we were wealthy. We became wealthy because we built great parks. Go out and build great parks and they radiate wealth. And that, that's really the way to think of them. All right, two more questions. Do you have suggestions for engaging community and business frontage owner buy-in to transitioning strodes to either streets or roads? Um, well, I, I think going... When we're talking business frontage, I think going from strode to street is a, a much easier conversation to have. Um, what you're telling people, and there's a trade-off. You know, some people like our our business owners, you know, apparently on our main street through town, believe that they're best served by having traffic drive through at 40 miles an hour. And the logic is, if they can't drive through very fast, uh, they'll skip over altogether. And so we've got to make it easy for them to drive fast. My argument is slow things down and actually make it a destination, make it a magnet so you're pulling people in who are actually wanting to be there, not just simply drive through as quickly as can and you'll do a lot better. That's the debate that we're having here locally. Um, but that conversation is actually pretty easy to have because we can, we can do things temporarily to try things out. What we're talking about is how do we get the most number of people that are here to stop and interact with the community? How do we get the community members to actually, you know, come to these places and interact with them? The much harder conversation, and, and quite frankly, I don't think you can have it in today's, uh, you know, today's culture. I actually think that a, a lot of a lot of what's going to happen here is just things are going to decline and just go bad and essentially people will walk away is this idea of going from a strode to a road because now you're going to a business owner and you're saying, look, you know, we've got uh, a mile here where we've got 40 access points. We really want zero. So we're going to take away, you know, 38 of these access points and have a couple in here and then funnel everybody down to, you know, some other street system 
where they could then get on the, the road and, and travel to the next productive place. The business model of these places along Strodes are largely built upon uh, the, 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 the notion that people would, um, you know, be, just like pull off the high. The, 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 the idea is that people drive by quickly and that they'll just swing into my place, right? And so by closing the accesses, you completely challenge that business model. That business model, I, I think the proper reaction to the Strode conversation from a street road standpoint is to say, we're going to try to create as many streets as we can out of our roads because that's, that's doable. But we're not going to worry about making our Strodes into roads. That is going to take care of itself by failure of the land use patterns in these areas. And the thing that we can do to make it better is to not uh, allow our roads to become more strody, right? Not, not to allow them to be degraded more than they are. And so essentially draw the line here, like here, no further. We're not going to make this worse. And then allow essentially markets to run their course and, you know, wipe out a lot of these places that just aren't viable. All right, last question. How does rapid bus rapid transit work on a street or road? Um, well, rapid bus rapid transit will not work on a street um, because bus rapid transit is designed to get you from one productive place to another at, at high speed, thus the, the rapid, right? But on a road, uh, bus rapid transit is ideal, right? It's, it's, it's ideal. Um, you're going from one place people want to be to another place people want to be with a high-speed connection between the two. And in a bus, you don't have one person sitting in a seat. Uh, you have dozens of people. And this is a very, this is a very efficient way uh, to operate a transit system. Uh, it's actually, in many ways, going to be cost-beneficial because when you have a place people want to be connected to another place people want to be, people are willing to pay for that trip. Uh, it, it, you know, it will get people where they want to go pretty quickly. Um, bus rapid transit is great for a road, um, not great for a street. Why? Because you're not trying to move people quickly on a street. Streets are all about access. It's all about being in a place. Roads are about getting to a place. Streets are about being in a place. Bus rapid transit is about getting you from one place to another. It's about getting to a place different than a street being in a place, bus rapid transit, no place in the street. Wow. We did get through all of them. I'd like to thank the, uh, the APBP, the association of pedestrian and bicycle professionals. Uh, I hope I helped you out here without insulting, uh, you too much. Um, gave you some questions to think about, uh, go back and, you know, don't let people, don't, don't, don't let people razzle dazzy with economic studies. Most of them are total crap. <laughs> All right, everybody. Take care and uh, keep doing what you can to build strong town. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, Bill, Bill. 
Bill, that's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah. 